spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Thanks for taking a break from the biggest week in gaming for episode 217 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and yeah, I know that E3 is going on this weekend and throughout the beginning of the week. Maybe you're listening to this after E3, actually, so you know our spoiler-filled and all the news from E3 is going to be coming up next week, episode 218 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast, so stick around for that next week. This week, it's Kari Walgren who's going to be joining me, of course, as the voice of Haruko on FLCL, Jessica on Rick and Morty, and a ton of other stuff. Here's the question, though. Let's find out how many times I'm actually going to call her Carrie instead of Kari, because you know how bad I am with names and stuff like that. So let's see how many times I can screw that up. But nothing to screw up here. It's what we're reading next, talking about some new comics on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm Sarah Desjardins from Impulse, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Power on that tablet or your laptop. How about pulling out the long box as well? Whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading this week. And yes, you know, I've got to go back to DC Comics because I can't just ignore Justice League number one, of course, the 2018 edition from DC Comics and writer Scott Snyder, Jim Chung on the pencils, Mark Morales on the inks, Tameo Mori on the colors, and Tom Napolitano on the letters. This really does begin a new chapter for the league, and this is coming right out of No Justice, which of course came out of Dark Knight's Metal, so everything is kind of going linear right now, and I love that. I mean, if you're going to relaunch the Justice League, and it certainly needed a shot in the arm at this point, why not do it in the long way, which you've if you've read Dark Knight's Metal from the beginning and gone all the way through, you should be good to go. I mean, you don't absolutely have to Read that to enjoy Justice League number one, but I'd recommend just going back and reading that anyway. Scott Snyder and company have done a great job over several issues with that. Now, there's quite a few active members at this point extending from the core group, but there is a core group of Justice League members in this book. You'll find that on the cover of the book, so I'm not going to go ahead and rattle off the names to you, but the main thing at the heart of this issue really is is the return of Martian Manhunter and what he means to the team and really putting a spotlight on him in general. We get to see about some stuff that happened with his family as well and some flashbacks and that kind of deals with the big threat to Earth that's going on as well. And that, you know, the league's trying to figure out what they're going to be doing about that. But there's also a whole other story of main antagonists. Maybe you've seen spoilers. I don't like to do spoilers for comics. You know that because, you know, if you haven't read it, I don't want to blow the big reveal for you. But one thing that this other kind of thing going on here, other antagonists that are going on, is it really resets one character that I really don't want to spoil, but it's almost like you saw it coming, but you didn't know when it was going to happen or how. And I think that the how is still not quite explained just yet. And I'm not even sure that this is really set in stone. I don't think we'll know that until at least a couple more issues where we can feel it out. You probably know who I'm talking about already, but again, I do not want to spoil this. But it looks like this person is full on back to exactly who they were before. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing either. I, I think that... This is one of those things that needed to be done. It was fun for a while, but, you know, kind of going back to the roots, I think was the right thing to do here, especially with what you're establishing. And it's something that uh, really tugs at the heartstrings of my childhood. So I appreciate Scott Snyder and the team for doing that. I feel like that I feel like one problem or another would have been enough, though. I think that, you know, this threat to the earth and then these antagonists, I think that one or the other would have been enough to carry the story. So it'll be interesting to see how those two things kind of balance each other out and work together going forward because it really seems like that's going to be the case. But I do like the dynamic of the league. It, it was very lighthearted, even in the face of something very, very serious that was going on. They, you know, they're kidding around with each other. Everybody's getting along. There's no real tension. So that's really, really good. 
I will say that the art was wasn't great at the very very beginning of the book, except for spoiler alert, just a tiny one. The Hall of Justice. When when I saw that that I was like, okay, we're gonna be just fine. But the first couple pages, maybe it was the it was the, it was the you know the far out shots. Maybe didn't catch my eye really quickly. But the art throughout the book after that, absolutely spectacular. I thought it was actually a really good choice for this book and kind of a dawning of a new age for the Justice League and really started to stand out, especially as we as we crept on towards the end. So a lot of things to love about Justice League number one. And just the way it felt like everybody, everything was back to normal with the Justice League books, whereas I felt like there was a disconnect there for the longest time, and it feels like this might have finally right, righted the ship. So I'm going to give this a poll. Can't wait to see what Scott Snyder and company are going to do in future issues. I think you picked the right guy for this book. Obviously, Scott Snyder knows how to handle these big-time moments, and I'm glad he's righted the ship for the Justice League. And I know I did DC and Dark Horse last week. I can't not do it this week either, though, because we've got Tomb Ra- a new Tomb Raider book out. It's Tomb Raider Inferno number one from Dark Horse Comics. What better way to talk about E3 than to talk about a Tomb Raider comic, right? Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly do the writing. Philip Seavey on the art. Michael Atea does the colors. And Michael Heisler on the letters. Hannah Templer, by the way. Excellent job on the cover for this book. Now, again, you don't necessarily have to read the previous arc from Lansing and Kelly to be able to jump into Inferno number one, but I would highly recommend it as they do a great job with the book. Now, Laura is still after Trinity, but the element of surprise is gone now. That's the one thing. Now that she's kind of dealt with them already, they sort of know who she is and they know what's coming and they kind of know her a little bit. And that's kind of what this first issue is is all about. They know what she's all about now. So to me, this book kind of takes away one of the biggest assets that Lars had in in certain times in these stories, and that is the element of surprise and the fact that she can do all of these things that not necessarily that you don't expect her to be able to do, but that now you know it, it's easy to once you know who you're dealing with especially over a certain amount of time, and you study your opponent and you find out where their weaknesses are or find out how they think, and then you apply that to what you're going to do. But now you're doing that in the most evil way possible because there's a new officer at the helm for Trinity, and we get to see this internal monologue from her and from Lara as well throughout the book. So, you know, you kind of see the book appeal to her archaeologist side. And then you see, well, Laura might do this, so let's prepare for this. And it was just very, very interesting to see the little twists and turns that happen in this book. And and while they're story-wise and substance-wise, there's not a whole lot that we get from this book other than it's Laura versus Trinity. And you know how, especially like in sports, you see the tides start to turn in certain games and momentum shift. And this might be one of those books that could be a momentum shift in one way or the other. I don't want to spoil that particular aspect for you, but it, it leaves you with the cliffhanger of, okay, so where does this book go from here? Because this is one book where you know after the first issue, once you go into issue two, by issue two, you know what direction you're going. And I like that a lot. I like knowing that, okay, we're going to get some story answers right away. And, you know, playing the long game sometimes is fine. But at this point, I think Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly did the right thing in telling re- pretty much telling readers, hey, we're going to let you know what's going to be going on in the next issue. So hopefully you'll love Lara Croft enough to stick around. And I absolutely do. As a matter of fact, the art was fantastic in this book. Philip C.V. does such a good job Every detail of every page was just stunning, especially you've got this winterscape kind of setting that they're in and giant ice blocks everywhere and all these action sequences with Laura and everything that's going on in this book pretty much spot on throughout. And I really, really, and I've always felt this way about the writing, Lansing and Kelly, and they know how to spotlight their female protagonists and their female characters in general, because you have also have a female antagonist in this book as well. It's like you know how to spotlight these characters, and it's it's just very reassuring to see that because you don't always see that in a lot of books. You read a lot of comics with female leads, 
that it just doesn't feel it, it either feels forced or just doesn't feel right. This one absolutely feels right. And it's not just because it's Lara Croft, because if you've read anything from Lansing and Kelly in the past, you know that they know how to treat their female protagonists the correct way. And for not being female writers themselves, I think that's a tip of the cap to them. This is another poll for me is if you be should be, should be surprised. I don't think I've ever rated anything from Lansing and Kelly any lower. I just love their work. And, and I know that you probably do too. And this is another one you're going to want to add to your poll box. Trust me on that. That's going to do it for what we're reading this week. Up next, going to get spoiler-filled this time and talk about Marvel's Cloak and Dagger on Freeform. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is David Sobolov, voice of Grodd on The Flash and Drax on Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to find out what's lurking in the shadows and find our way to the light. My spoiler-filled review of the two-hour premiere of Marvel's Cloak and Dagger, which was on Freeform. Now, normally this is where I would give you heavy spoilers in my review, but because the episode is only like a day old as of the episode airing, as of our episode airing here of the podcast, I don't really want to go too spoiler heavy here. So I'm going to give you a few spoilers and I'll try and point them out before I do. But I just feel like, you know, after 24 hours, not necessarily a whole lot of time for you to avoid spoilers. So if you want to skip ahead a little bit, just in case, I don't blame you. But I will set the stage for you here, just in case you aren't familiar with the books. It follows Tandy Bowen, who play, who's played by Olivia Holt, and Tyrone Johnson, who's played by Aubrey Joseph, who are really on two completely different paths in their life right now. As far as you know, we've got one that comes from a wealthy family, and one that is really down on their luck and trying to kind of put their life together and, you know, scrounge up just enough to get the family out. But there is a family and the family dynamics couldn't be any more different here either. You've kind of got the at times overbearing parents and then you've got a mother figure who's just messed up and, you know, hasn't quite recovered from the tragedy that happened to their family. Now, here's where I I am going to get a little bit spoilery here because I mean, the way that this show depicts what happened to both Tandy and Tyrone in their childhood was done so amazingly well that at times it was tough to watch, especially when, spoiler alert, you see young Tyrone after running away from the police to see his brother get shot by that police officer and then the aftermath of what that does to his family, and then you see Tandy, who's in the car with her dad, and there's something going on with the Roxxon Corporation, and there's an accident, the car ends up in the water, and I mean, just the way that, you know, you're looking at these kids who, I mean, their lives have barely started, and the way that they both have to deal with such unbelievable tragedy and just death-defying situations so early on in their life as somebody who has a son, I mean, that just, just... crushed me a little bit. So I actually thought that that was very well done by everyone involved in the show here. Now, how they are connected and how they still carry that with them into their teenage years, I think was really amazing too, because you see at times in in both the, the first part of the episode, and especially in the second part, where you've got the ballet slipper and you've got the jacket and they're both hanging on to these items and just remembering that day where they were both kind of washed up in that beach, not knowing exactly how they got there in the first place. And you see them throughout the show continue to kind of be drawn towards one another once those initial introductions are made anyway. And I'll get to that here in just a second. But it, it seems to ha- it seems like they end up drawn to each other when it's needed the most. You know, once one of them is about to make a certain decision then the other one sort of just pops up, sometimes literally, in in one particular instance in these episodes. But, I mean, as far as the characters go, I think that everybody's actually actually plays their role pretty well. Uh, But Tandy's mom is the one that's going to frustrate the hell out of you the most because it's sure frustrated the hell out of me. And, you know, it's like... At one point, you get that she's been through some stuff in her life and everything that happened with with her husband... But at the same time, it's like, get it together. I mean, you, you kind of play both sides there, but it's like the mom is the screw-up and the daughter's the one that's trying to 
pull the life together. So, I mean, that can be frustrating in a certain sense. And that, that all ties back to the Roxxon Corporation as well, which I think we still haven't figured out how big of a role Roxxon is going to have in the show, but it feels like it's dormant right now and it's just something that's getting ready to bust out. Now, the one that I really felt bad for in this entire thing was Liam, who plays the love interest of Tandy, at least early on. And and what happens to this dude? Who is, you know, he's just a guy that's in love with a girl. It's the classic story, right? And he'll do anything for her. And then how that ends up, at least at the end of this first two-part episode, you know where this story is eventually going to be going. But you feel bad for the dude. Anyway, he's not the greatest dude in the world either, but he's great for Tandy. And that's the thing that, that kind of got me is that, but that's part of what she does, right? And it's part of what Tyrone does as well. The kind of the pushing away of certain people. And that's a big spotlight of the show as well. So I kind of struggled at that point on whether or not I was kind of rooting for Tandy based on certain decisions that she made. And she's no, she's no Girl Scout. And you learn that very, very on in the show. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And that's a byproduct of whatever you want to make it. But at the same time, you're going, you know, why are you doing this in certain instances, especially with Liam? Even though, again, as a fan, you know that her and Tyrone kind of belong together, they're drawn together, right? But then you see an unfortunate casualty and all that, and that's Liam. And the first thing you look back on to, to put blame on that is Tandy. But, you know, Tandy's got it rough, man. I mean, she... She she almost gets assaulted at one point. Granted, I mean she stole the dude's stuff, but still, come on, man, you, you call the cops, right? So that was that was an uncomfortable point to watch. And then she that's when she kind of finds out about her powers, and Tyrone finds out about his powers when he's thinking about tracking down the cop that killed his brother. And that was you want to talk about a frustrating scene when the when he's in there as a kid, and the, and the, you I assume the chief of police says. You know, they're, they're, that cop doesn't work for us. Never met the dude. And that was very frustrating scene for me as well. But it seems like going to Tyrone now, Tyrone kind of keeps... It's like he's searching for guidance so bad. And he just isn't getting it. Whether it be from his family. Now, we see that start to come on a little bit later on in in the episode. Or at least the second, the, the last part of the second episode. But it, it's like he's looking so hard for somebody to show him the way... And it's just leading him to bad decisions because he doesn't have that guidance because mom's busy, dad's busy slash aloof. And then you've got Father Delgado, who's the, who's the at the school that he goes to, the religious school. And I got to tell you, I just get a vibe about Father Delgado. And it was, maybe it was that convenience store scene where he was going to buy bread and he ends up buying booze instead. I don't know. Something feels off about Father Delgado. It seems like there's more... To him that meets the eye. So that's a character that I'm definitely keeping an eye on going forward. But I love how these early episodes are dealing with the real life aspects of these characters in teenage life in general. Not just kind of jumping right into their powers. And I think that this is where the show will excel on Freeform. Is that Freeform does that very well. They try to get real to life on the network. But at the same time dealing with the larger storyline in hand. And that's why then Cloak and Dagger will work best on this network. Now, when they do get their powers, I mean, it's almost as green as you would see ever of anybody getting their powers to the point of it actually being dangerous, not just for them, but for other people. I mean, you saw that for when, when Tandy was being assaulted and she defends herself and how that happens and her not knowing how to deal with her powers. And then Tyrone trying to track down the cop, which of course he finds, and then he almost gets his head blown off as well. And that's how he kind of discovers that his powers are working as well. I don't know how long it's going to be before they get control of their powers, but it'll be very interesting to see how long that takes. As a matter of fact, if they want to keep dragging it out almost throughout the entire season, I'm not sure I'm going to mind that because these are kids we're talking about. These are teenagers and they're not necessarily going to get it right away. Like how many times have we watched an X-Men show like The Gifted or any other X-Men movie? You see somebody discover their powers for the first time and it's not just like riding a bike. You just know how to do it instinctively, right? You know how to use these powers. That's not always the case. So I think it'll be interesting to see how long that gets dragged out. I will say that the chemistry doesn't seem like it's quite there 
between Tandy and Tyrone just yet. But I actually think, and I know that this has been a point of contention in other reviews, I actually think that there's a point to that. I think that that's part of how we're supposed to feel this early on because that's real, right? Even if you felt a strong connection to someone, the chemistry is not going to necessarily be there right away, or you're not going to know why there's chemistry there in the first place. And I know that this is fiction, but again, if we're going to try and keep this as true to life as possible, as far as them being human beings is concerned, maybe this is the best way to go about this. And they haven't even had their come to an understanding conversation yet. Tyrone did have that one moment when he runs her down after that party saying, hey, you were the one on the beach. So he kind of understands who she is. I don't think she's quite there yet until they kind of have that understanding. I'm not sure the chemistry can be right between these two. So I don't mind giving that a little bit more time to see if that develops. The show's shown a lot of promise in this first big two-part episode. Definitely needs to pick up the pace a little bit and start to connect a few dots and kind of zero in on, okay, so here's going to be the focus of the show going forward. I know it's going to be about them and getting their powers and them developing their relationship, but we need to know, okay, is Roxxon going to be the focus? Is this cop going to be the focus? Are we going to find out that the cop works for Roxxon, which isn't 100% clear, might have been hinted at at certain points, maybe in the episode very subtly, not made clear to me, so I'm not ready to make that connection just yet and how how is the family going to factor into all this as well and again hiding their powers that's always an interesting part of shows like this because they're absolutely going to have to hide their powers and who's going to find out and when and how that's going to be dealt with I just think there's a lot that this show needs to do and I think for the short episode run that it's going to be getting in this first season I hope it gets to it sooner rather than later because it's going to be very very hard to make up that time as you get to the end, and you better hook the audience early. And I think that this episode actually did. I know critically it hasn't done too well so far as far as reviews go are concerned, but I liked it. I, w- I was definitely drawn in. I was very interested to watch it. And I think it was that first part episode, that first hour, that really grabbed me emotionally. And that's one thing that this show did. Whether you're, you know, you might be on the fence about whether or not you're going to root for them, but you feel for them on some level. And if you can grab the audience with that, at least in the beginning, give me a reason to care about these characters one way or the other and get invested in them even a little bit. I feel like this show does that, but I also feel like there's a tipping point of if you want us to really love these characters, you need to give me a reason to love them both, and maybe that's bringing them together. We'll have to see how that happens. But for now, I'm still very interested in Cloak and Dagger. I'll definitely keep watching. I would recommend that you do the same as well. Definitely watch past this first two-part episode, too, because I think by episode three, I'm hoping that that's where we're going to get the ship steered in the direction that the show is going to be going for the rest of the season, get a couple more answers because it seems like we are right on the verge of that right now. That's going to do it for my spoiler-ish review of Cloak and Dagger for Marvel and Freeform. Up next, some nerd news and a bunch of trailers to talk about. That's here on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm Court Lane, VP of Animation Development at Marvel, and I'm listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, fellow nerds and nerdettes, I hope you like trailers because it's time for nerd news and a ton of trailers came out this week. I'm not talking about video games because, again, we're going to be doing our full coverage of E3 filled with spoilers and all kinds of good stuff next week, although there is one game I'm going to talk about a little bit later on. But let's start out with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which let's just go without saying I'm not going to like read you descriptions of all of these trailers or anything either. I'm just going to tell you what I think. And Into the Spider-Verse... Is just visually stunning. I mean, if it's nothing else, if this movie ends up being terrible, if nothing else, it will be visually stunning. And there's nothing that you can't take that away from this movie. It's one of the most visually stunning animated movies, at least based on trailers so far, that I've ever seen. I love this animation style. I hope that we see more of it in the future. And I really think it's perfect for the Spider Man universe. And jumping into the trailer itself, Man, do I love the relationship between Miles and his dad and the way he embarrasses him and just their interactions together in the trailer. I think I'm looking forward to that just as much as anything else in this movie because it just it it adds a humor element that doesn't feel forced. 
And it's all, and it gives you that realistic father-son relationship. And I can't wait to dive into that more. And then you've got Peter Parker, who is in that mentor role, who, of course, is stuck inside a world that isn't his. And his relationship between he and Miles is kind of brought to the forefront a little bit in this trailer. And, and I actually like it. It's, it is kind of a typical mentor-mentee type of relationship, but at the same time, it's not. And Miles, of course, there's the line in the trailer who says, I think you're going to be really bad at this. And Peter Parker, not necessarily known as a mentor throughout the years anyway. So I think that'll be really cool to see how the interaction is going to be as well. But even though we see all of these characters popping up, this still really feels like a Miles Morales movie, doesn't it? Even though others are involved. So I really do like that. It looks like the spotlight will actually be on Miles this time. And we'll get to explore that a little bit further. And I'm sure that we'll see some other characters as well. Again, not really a whole lot as far as story is concerned. We don't, But you don't really expect that from a trailer. Do you want to get stuff completely spoiled for you right there in a trailer? Now, what we do get to see is Spider-Gwen who, of course, will be voiced by Haley Steinfeld, who, look who suddenly decided to dive feet first into the nerd world, by the way. We'll talk about her again in just a second. But, I mean, I again, I like the fact that they're bringing Spider-Gwen into this movie. If you're going to do a Spider-Verse movie anyway, you might as well bring everybody into the pool, right? So bring in Spider-Gwen, and then we'll have, I'm sure we'll have Scarlet Spider at some point. And, you know, maybe even Spidey 2099 tried to squeeze that out of Peter David at Tidewater Comic-Con. He wouldn't budge. So we'll see if Spidey 2099 makes an appearance as well. And I know none of this is really confirmed or anything. I'm just psyched for this. I love the fact that they made it an animated movie that you, you could call that a risk. I don't think it is. I think it's a really smart move by Sony's part. And we'll see how it goes. Speaking of Haley Steinfeld, we finally got a look at the Bumblebee, um, Bumblebee movie, or did we? Because... I mean, while this feels like kind of a deeply personal bond between Bumblebee and Haley Steinfeld's character, we really don't get a whole lot other than her reaction to seeing Bumblebee for the first time. We get a quick look at John Cena's character. We see, you know, transforming and we see Decepticons and, you know, big, you know, catching helicopters and stuff like that. But, I mean, the the crux of this seems to be, I mean, Bumblebee's clearly freaked out about something. And they clearly develop a bond. But other than that, the beats just feel very similar in this trailer, don't they? Where she's like, you know, these people count on you and all these other things. And I'm like, yeah, I've heard this line before. And I think that, you know, even the most steadfast and open-minded Transformers fans is going to be leery of this movie no matter what, right? Because this is almost the last in the line of the old Transformers movies that we've gotten that have gotten progressively worse, if we're being quite honest. So being hesitant about this, I have no problem with that. If you're feeling a little on edge about this and not sure, I don't think this trailer does a whole lot to ease your fears there. I don't think it makes you over I don't think it pushes you over the edge either necessarily. But this trailer doesn't do a whole lot to calm your fears and tell you, okay, this is why this movie's gonna be different. Just because it's focused on Bumblebee doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be different than any of the other Transformers movies. And even the humor is kind of still the same, right? Like, we've seen the whole Bumblebee and music thing before, haven't we? And it's just, uh, I don't know how long you can play that card. So, this movie didn't, I mean, this trailer didn't really sway me one way or the other. So, we'll have to see what's going to happen. But I'm just as nervous for this, if not more nervous than I am for Jurassic World 2. And that one I'm really nervous about. This one really intrigues me though. And this is Peter Jackson's Mortal Mortal Engines. And I say that because Peter Jackson being attached to anything pretty much draws attention. Now I will talk about this a little bit because it's not, this isn't exactly a known entity. Basically the story is thousands of years after civilization was destroyed in a cataclysmic event. And this comes right from the trailer description on YouTube, by the way. Humans have evolved and adapted. And there are moving cities now that prey on smaller towns. And the focus is on the characters Tom Knotsworthy and Hester Shaw, who kind of find themselves really thrown together in an unlikely alliance at one point. And you see why that is when you watch the trailer. And, you know, they've got to save their their, their own hides and... We're possibly seeing that the fact that they have to save humanity as well, because apparently there's this city-destroying device, and, and it's it's very superhero-esque in that way, you know, evil trying to destroy the world sort of thing, and 
This just feels like a Peter Jackson movie, doesn't it? You have all these epic scenes with like a thousand characters in every single frame that you get in this trailer, right? There's these big, giant moving vehicles and funky vehicles and flying things and all that stuff. It just feels like an otherworldly Peter Jackson movie. And I gotta be honest, as a fan of Peter Jackson, that makes me happy and super excited for this because yeah, I know Peter Jackson has a tendency to have his movies be too long and all that stuff, but you know, there's no pressure now. Mortal Engines, it feels like the pressure is kind of off of him to just go out there and have fun and tell a story because you're not really dealing with fans of Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit that are going to pick apart every little thing. Not that you shouldn't, but the pressure is really kind of off with Moral Engines because this isn't a, isn't a huge known entity, or at least I don't think it is. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. So I think that this is a good chance for Peter Jackson to just kind of let loose and have fun and talk about stuff in interviews like whether or not he'll do a DC or a Marvel movie at some point. He hasn't shut the door on that. So that's pretty exciting news as well. But I'm I'm digging Mortal Engines. By the way, pretty much all of these movies come out around Christmas time, in case you're wondering. It seems like this was the week to release all of those trailers. One more I'm going to talk about is the Lego Movie 2, which is called the second one. And what else would you call it? Because that's very Lego movie. And we see that after the events of Taco Tuesday, it's kind of turned into Mad Max, right? For everyone but Emmett. And that should be no surprise whatsoever and then we get to see the new threat that emerges and kind of kidnaps everybody and it's up to Emmett to save everybody kind of on his own now you kind of know this is the one trailer where it's like okay here's where we're going we're going no mystery here and the cis star universe is is talked about now this is clearly a reference to the sister being able to play, right? Because you see the little hearts everywhere and then you see what almost looks like a mobile type thing pop up at one point you see stickers used as a weapon. I, I chuckle because I just love the lighthearted fun that is the Lego movie that's unapologetically what it is. And it makes adult-style jokes in a way that just hides it so well and makes it enjoyable for everyone watching this movie. So, again, I think that this is one sequel where I feel like they will definitely be able to follow up what they did in the first one. I'm always a little bit hesitant when it comes to sequels anyway, anyway, especially from a movie that was good the first time, because then you've got to follow that up. And I think that the Lego Movie 2 is absolutely going to do that. Now, the E3 leaks are just going to continue pretty much until the day E3 starts. Of course, maybe you're listening to this after E3 or after E3's already started. So I'm just going to talk about this trailer as it was released. I mean, I'm, this is being recorded on June the 7th on a Thursday, so it's right before... E3 really kind of gets started. So this is based on information that was gathered on the initial trailer release for Hitman 2, which was officially announced on on June the 7th, which is going to be coming in November 13th of 2018 from Warner Brothers Games and IO Interactive. Now, this is a direct sequel to the 2016 game. We don't really get a whole lot of story from this trailer, so I think we can base it on that a little bit if you've played the last one. Now, some fans will be very happy about this. This will not be an episodic thing. It's going to be a full game release. And that and that was one of the things that, you know, a lot of gamers didn't like about the last Hitman game and was kind of frustrating. Now, the trailer kind of gives us a scene in a Formula One race and goes through all these scenarios on how you can carry out your mission. And it just I don't know if this is going to be the case or not, but it makes it feel like things are expanding. I'm giving you even more options because now I know that Hitman's always been kind of full of options before anyway, but it really makes it gives it replayability too because you're thinking, okay, maybe I want to use the C4 this time, or maybe I just want to loosen the lug nuts in the tire. Maybe I just want to go up on a building and try and use a sniper rifle and hit a guy that's driving a fast car. There are so many options that you can do in these Hitman games now, and I think that that's one of the things that they're going to spotlight the most. Now, of course, it's revealed in the trailer that you can play Silent Assassin if you pre-order the Hitman 2 right now. So I'm, I've am i always been a huge fan of the Hitman games and continuing the story 
of Agent 47. This is why I don't really need a Hitman movie or anything. Because the games are always so good. And they've always kind of given you such a good story that I don't need any more. If you were going to do anything with this, though, I would do a TV series. Just saying. If you absolutely have to do Hitman and other form of media, make it a TV series. Stop making the movies because the games are just way too good. And I think that the story of Agent 47 is one that you could tell over and over and over again, and it wouldn't get old. So these are games that I think could really go on forever, and I really hope that Hitman 2 is a success and kind of starts to make that happen. One more thing I want to talk about is the Adams Family animated movie cast that was just released and a little bit of a description. Of course, this came out from Variety this past week. The movie will be released on October the 11th, 2019. Now, I was surprised that this is going to be an animated movie because wasn't it at first wasn't it said that it was going to be a live action movie and we knew that Oscar Isaacs was going to be involved anyway and yes he is going to be vo- voicing Gomez in this movie I mean I'm cool either way I just thought it was going to be live action and maybe this is a change and maybe it wasn't so you'll have to let me know if if maybe I was wrong about that now what we are going to see before I jump into the cast is, and this is from the story from Variety, we see that the family's life begins to unravel when they face off against a crafty reality TV host while preparing for family to arrive for a major celebration. Now, here's the cast. And, of course, we've got Oscar Isaac. Charlize Theron is going to be Morticia. I think that's a good one. Wednesday Adams is going to be voiced by Chloe Grace Moretz. Now, I'll be honest. I really thought that this was one that could have gone to Millie Bobby Brown, but I was kind of thinking more when it was going to be live action, because I think that she could have the look and the attitude down of Wednesday. But that doesn't mean Chloe Grace Moretz can't do it, and I'm not going to get stuck in my head uh, with with Millie Bobby Brown. But what's ironic about that is is that Pugsley is going to be voiced by Stranger Things as Finn Wolfhound, so maybe I get half of what I really wanted. Now, Uncle Fester being voiced by Nick Kroll, I know that I'm not a huge Nick Kroll fan. I guess I could see how he could do a good job on this. Grandma's going to be voiced by Bette Midler, and Margot Needler is going to be voiced by Allison Janney, and she's been kind of the rival of the family this entire time. I know that Twitter kind of went ablaze about what the characters look like in the first revealed photo, but before you get upset, I want you to remember that the Adams Family was a comic strip at one point from Charles Adams and it was a cartoon series as well and that's what Matt Lieberman's script is going to be based on now if you look at the comic strip and then look at the characters they are very true to the original comic strip almost to the pen stroke or keyboard stroke or mouse stroke whatever you want to call it in this day of CG but it really is directly related to that. So at first, when I first saw Gomez, I'm like, you know, he looks a little funky, not quite as debonair as we're used to from the Adams family. And I, not every adaptation, but a lot of times, you know, they try and make him look suave and debonair. But then you look at the comic strip and you go, you know what? If they want to pay homage to the original comic strip, which was in 1938, so of course it's going to look a little bit different than we would see now. I'm, I'm totally 100% okay with that because what that means to me is is that they are going to be very truthful to the Adams Family lore and try and make something that is for Adams Family fans. So I am totally okay with the way that these characters look. And while we don't know anything yet because we haven't seen a trailer or anything like that, I'm excited for this because I love the Adams Family anyway. And even though it's not going to be a live action movie, I'm cool with this. If this is successful, maybe we do get a live action movie or a series or something that comes out of this. So can't wait to see this when it comes out in October of next year. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, how about this? Going to be talking to voice actress extraordinaire Kari Walgren about FLCL, Rick and Morty, and a whole bunch more next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Tara Strong, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. We love talking to voice talent on the Down and Nerdy Podcast, especially when they've done as many things as she's done, the voice actress of Haruko and FLCL. I mean, Jessica and Rick and Morty, a ton of other stuff. It's Kari Walgren. Kari, how you doing? Hi, I'm good. Thanks. Now, before we talk about all the stuff that you have going on right now, you were just at MomoCon, actually, not too long ago. What was it like interacting with the fans there? 
actually, you know, I was, I was just talking to my parents on the phone this morning and I was saying it was one of the most meaningful conventions I'd been to in a, uh, in a while. The fan interactions there were, were especially lovely and just, you know, met a number of people that had such nice things to say. So it was, it was a really, it was a really positive experience. Now, I know that the anime version of FLCL has been around since, I think, 2000, the English version coming out. I think it was in 2003. So what's it like to kind of go back to this story and to Haruko after all these years? It's kind of existential in a way. That was my very, very first voiceover job that I did after moving to Los Angeles. And I think I recorded that maybe a year after I moved out there. So I was working a desk job and I was really poor and, and, you know, trying to get my career started. So it's, it's kind of trippy to be returning to it and kind of looking back and seeing what path my life took. And there's kind of this feeling of coming full circle. Now, I know the fans are super excited for it to be coming back. So talking about Haruko, what do you think is kind of the most badass thing about her? Is it her scooter, the guitars, or do you think it's something else entirely? <laughs> uh, well, all of those are are amazing things. I think she just, I think she's so unapologetically authentic. Like that, she has no filter. She's just completely herself, and uh, she's got all these different sides to her. She's got a playful side. She's got a sexy side. She's got a a tender side. She's got a funny side. And I I think we all have different sides to ourselves too. And so I think people just really respond to, to the fact that she's very multidimensional. I think we got to actually see all of those sides throughout the first season as well, which was really, really cool. Now, actually, after everything that went down at the end of that last episode, the fans have seen between Haruko and Adamusk and Naota, what do you think are her priorities heading into FLCO Progressive? (laughs) Haruko. Her priority is Haruko. <laughs> no, that, yeah, that's that's kind of simple, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I would uh, I would say yeah. She's very much. I I said in one interview that she she reminds me of the embodiment of the id. Ooh. You know, she's just all passion, all impulse, all drive, and and passion, and she just yeah. I think she just operates from a very immediate place and kind of centers around her. Now, if you don't know what an id is, kids, go ahead, Google it. It's it's apt. Trust us. That that works out very well. Absolutely. Have fun reading, kids, <laughs> there you on go. that there you and go. My Google search. <laughs> now, I think fans would agree that one of the things that they love about the show is the music. Now, how great is it to see the Pillows kind of selling out shows on this U.S. tour? And do you actually have a favorite tune? Well, the writing on the Shooting Star tune. I mean, it seems kind of cliche, but I I definitely love that one. And it's so exciting that the pillows are coming back for the sequels. I think, I think that was one of the the hugest things that the fans were really hoping for. And it really, you know, we, we were working on the second season and, and you hear the music kick in and you just feel like you're doing FLCL. So fingers crossed, they've been selling out so much uh, that I'm, I'm hoping I get to see them when they play. I'm, I'm thinking you've got some sort of an entry where you should be able to get in there. <laughs> I mean, I, I would think that there are some perks to being Haruko. I'm, I'm planning to work all of my connections to make that happen. So I, I think that's <laughs> we'll a good see. plan. Good plan. We're talking to Kari Walgren, who, of course, voices... I don't know, pretty much everything that you've ever seen in your entire life, it seems like. So oh, let's, thank you. Let's talk about that, actually, because you also have Transformers, Power of the Primes, that just came out from Warner Brothers and Machina. I mean, that is a like an all-star cast. Now, you're the voice yeah. of Victorion, so we know how powerful she is and that she considers herself a leader. Now, without spoiling anything, can we kind of expect to see much of the same in this series? Oh, there, uh, there's so little that I can say without spoiling anything, but, but, uh, definitely you nailed it as far as she's very powerful. She's very much a leader figure and she carries that into the series. And I can't say anything else or, you know, they're going to do a poison blow dart gun or something. And, you know, (laughs) 
You just get snuffed sh- me out during this interview. Just get shanked <laughs> right there in the middle of the interview. Right, that, absolutely. That, yeah, yeah, we definitely don't want that to happen. So <laughs> let's switch gears to just as much of a tight-lipped uh, kind of place, and that's Marvel. Now, going a little bit on that side, you've actually voiced uh, Proxima Midnight on quite a few occasions on a couple of different shows for them, actually. Now, we recently saw that Carrie Coon was the voice of the character in Avengers Infinity War. Now, I remember when I taught, when I did an interview with Tara Strong, she said, you know, anytime somebody voiced a character that she's kind of done a lot, she kind of has that, oh, well, you know, I could have done that. Why couldn't I have done that same thing? So what's it like for you to see someone work in a role that you've kind of done quite a few times? You know, most of the time it doesn't bother me just because... It happens so much, you know, their shows get bought by different companies or they get rebooted or they take the show in a different direction. So, you know, to get to play the same character over a lot of different iterations is actually more and more rare now. Mm -hmm. So I'm always more thrilled when I get asked back to play something again. Oh, Oh, you know, I did this voice in this cartoon and now they're doing a video game and I get to play it in the video game or, Oh, I get to, you know, they rebooted the show. I I think I did charm caster in three reboots of Ben 10. That's crazy. And it was so exciting. I just, every time they rebooted it, I kept getting so excited that they would ask me back to, to revoice her. And I don't know if she's appeared in the most recent fourth reboot but I, I didn't get asked back for for that one so so it doesn't necessarily you know there every once in a while you have your little sentimental favorites that you think oh I would have loved to have come back for this character but you know I, I always consider it from the other side and think oh it's an honor every time you get asked back at the same time do you kind of have one that you kind of hold close to you and you're like okay this one's mine Haruko. Yeah, there it is. (laughs) That one, I mean, which is odd because, you know, it's originally uh, done in Japan, so you do share it with a Japanese voice actress. But, yeah, that one, if they had had recast with someone else for the sequels, I would have been pretty pretty sad so in regards to sharing roles like that for anyone that kind of doesn't know is is it is there a different challenge that goes along with doing a dub like that yeah well that's a great question um basically if you're doing an anime show which is something like you know dragon ball z or flcl it's created in another country first for instance japan And so when we get it, we basically have to sync everything up to a pre-existing picture. So the artwork's all done, the music's all done. So it's a very technical skill as well as a creative skill because you have to fit everything into the existing mouth flaps. You have to sync everything up timing-wise. When we record something that's what's called, you know, original animation or, or a U.S. animation show, we record the voices first and then they animate it to us. So there's there's more freedom to interpret the lines the way that you want to or take more time with them. So you don't have the visuals and everything to back it back it up. Right. You know, you have to imagine things, but you also have a little bit more flexibility with your creative choices. So there are pros and cons to both sides, but they're, they're very different ways of, of working. Now, Kari, I feel like we could really go on forever talking about all the characters that you've voiced. So let's jump (laughs) through the catalog this way. If you could have any two characters that you've played join up in a crossover with no restrictions, which two would you choose and why? Oh gosh. Okay. Um, Emma Frost and, Maybe Marsha Crinkle, who is this just soulless news anchor from the new Boss Baby cartoon on Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. What do you think the title of that show would even be? Oh, gosh. The Cold Hard News or something like that? Something like that. Or something with blonde blonde bombshells wreak havoc on i don't know i i can't think of anything at the moment my improv skills are deserting me that that would be really cool to see that 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 would be something that would certainly be different and different is is good so i like that (laughs) 
Now, now let's talk. I, I mean, I can't let you go before we talk about Rick and Morty for a minute. The show's obviously sticking around after being renewed for 70 episodes recently. So will we see Jessica play a little bit of a bigger role coming up? And do you think that things will ever really happen between her and Morty? Oh, man. Well, they were so tight-lipped and secretive about that, that it was a surprise to me, too, about the new 70 episodes. So, you know, I'm hoping that uh, Jessica and Rick's spaceship, who I also voice Mm -hmm. on this show, I'm hoping that they make some appearances in in the new upcoming episodes. Justin is just such a genius. He's just one of the smartest, coolest guys you'd ever meet. So anytime I get to work with him is, is really great. And Dan's the same way. I mean, we, we did a little bit of, you know, recording together for, for like some DVD extras and stuff like that. And I found myself not saying much of anything because it was just so fascinating to sit and listen to them talk. So I'm hoping that uh, I'm hoping that I come back for the the new episodes. As far as whether anything will happen between uh, Morty and Jessica, gosh, I don't know. With all of the time and space mm-hmm. bending, maybe there's some reality out there where it works for them. We'll it was, see. It was so close, though. It was so close. <laughs> it really was so close, and everybody's like, ah, is it going to happen? And then it just really kind of got screwed up. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? They actually rewrote that episode a lot. Wow. And nice. um, and I, I can't say much more other than it got closer in the earlier drafts. But uh, no cigar, kids. No cigar yet. Interesting, interesting. Well, we'll just have to, we'll just have to keep up with that. As a matter of fact, you might want to take out your phones to keep up with all this stuff because FLCO Progressive, you can see that Saturday at midnight on Cartoon Network's Toonami Block. Then you have Transformers Power of the Primes, which is available now on from Machinima and Warner Brothers Animation. You can also follow her on Twitter because she's all got all kinds of amazing work going on all the time that you don't want to miss any of it. It's Kari Walgren. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thanks a lot. <laughs> You know how much I love talking to voiceover talent on this show anyway, but I love talking to people like Kari Walgren who have played so many different characters. I mean, there's so many, so much stuff I didn't even get to talk about. I mean, she's actually voiced Mary Jane Watson and Gwen Stacy in different Spider-Man projects. She's done so much. Go to her IMDb page and you'll be scrolling for like an hour and looking at all the amazing stuff that she's done, and if you're an FLCL fan, I know that you're psyched that she's back as Haruko, and the the show is back anyway on Cartoon Network, Saturday nights at midnight on the Toonami block. I know that you're super stoked for that. Maybe you get a chance to see the pillows on the U.S. tour as well because there's a ton of excitement surrounding FLCL and Transformers Power of the Primes and so many other things that Kari has going on right now and will have going on in the future, I'm sure. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, don't forget, coming up on episode 218, our full coverage of E3 2018. All of the trailers, the games, the press conferences, the winners and losers. I'll talk about that all coming up on the show this week. But remember to find us on social media, facebook.com slash down and nerdy, at down and nerdy 757 on Twitter and on Instagram. Everything on our website, down and nerdy podcast. And of course, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.